Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I spent a lot of money, I spent a lot of time. That trip we made to Hollywood is still that's upon my mind. For all the things you've done and seen, you find another man. Things you think are useless, I can't understand. Now are you reeling in the This is The Stuff of Life, and I'm your host, Julie Douglas. In our last episode, we explored adolescence, the time when we lived our lives like a fever dream and carved out some of our most poignant memories. Now we look at how those memories become the fertile ground of nostalgia and how nostalgia works on us personally, politically, and culturally. In this way, nostalgia is a time machine, stringing together memories to give meaning to the present and framing our expectations for the future. God, my fingers are so cold for noticing. That's Curtis. We met him in a Washington, D.C. park on the evening of President Trump's inauguration, a moment in time when many in the U.S. were taking time to reflect. Some were jubilant with nostalgia and the idea that we're returning to another era like Dan, who was on his way back from inauguration festivities. We're going to return to the constitutional status where people can work to be free, where they can work for merit, where they can work for their future. And I honestly believe We're in the rising tide that will lift all boats if you let it. Some people, like Curtis, wax nostalgic about an America that he thinks no longer exists. My biggest thing in all this is if everybody out here protesting spent the same amount of time protesting, volunteering, we wouldn't have anything to protest over. We wouldn't even have anything to protest over. It would be giving everybody like we used to in the old America. Helping your neighbor out to see their homework. In this episode, our How Stuff Works co-workers, Holly Fry and Christopher Hesiodis, discuss the pitfalls of nostalgia. I think if you're grasping at the way things used to be and imagining that they're better, um, even if they were better in certain measurable ways, it 
can prevent you from looking at the world around you as it is. And we talked to psychologist Clay Rutledge about how nostalgia may just be one of the most potent survival tools in our psychological toolkits. The people who are naturally using nostalgia as they age seem to be doing pretty well in terms of psychological health. But first, we talked to a professional antique picker, Larry Singleton. He's the decor manager of Cracker Barrel, and he curates a kind of nostalgic continuity for 642 Cracker Barrel stores in the United States, complete with a warehouse full of artifacts at the ready for new store openings. I can walk out in our warehouse every day and and see something that brings back brings that back to me. It brings back that memory of my dad, you know, teaching me how to drive a T-model truck. I remember, you know, him telling me the stories of his adventures growing up and taking a trip in a T-model to Indiana with a friend, you know, to pick up rabbits. They were going to go into the raising rabbit business, you know. So, you know, it just kind of, when I see something like that here or, you know, it just, it brings back family. It brings back, you know, that connection to my history and my family's history. It just, you know, and it, and it, it's always a good feeling, you know, it's always that connection to them, you know. Dan W. Evans opened that first Cracker Barrel in Lebanon, Tennessee. Danny decided to, you know, he'd come up with the idea, you know, him and some folks about doing a little place out on the interstate for families to stop and, uh, you know, serve them food and serve some gasoline. Uh, he, he got mom and dad to come in and, and set up the first first restaurant. Uh, and that was in September 1969. Each Cracker Barrel has a kind of old-timey general store look to it with rocking chairs on the front porch. Creating that old atmosphere and that feel that he he, he had remembered, he brought that to, uh, you know, to a place out on the interstates that other people could, you know, set, set in and enjoy. Slow down, you know, slow down and, and take it easy. The retail area has all kinds of wares, from sweets and candles to quilts and old-fashioned toys. Inside the restaurant, trays of chicken and dumplings emerge from the kitchen. Everywhere you look, there's an admixture of antiques and objects that evoke bygone days. We're talking black and white family photos, butter churn, a fiddle hanging above that. Oh, I look at the things we have and the tools and the, you know, I mean, it, it is what, you know, these are the things that, forged and made our country, you know, these these farms, these rural communities, these, you know, as they were building industries and, and making things, you know, these are all the things they used to make that. A lot of the pieces are, you know, from when, you know, America was really, really growing and, and you know, uh, we're establishing, you know, I don't know about pioneers, but I mean, I think they were establishing industry and community, you know, so I think they they do have a connection, you know. The antiques differ from store to store, but among the 5,000 items each store has, the same five types of antiques can be found. An ox yoke, 
and a horseshoe hang above each front door, a traffic light over the entrance to the restrooms, a wall telephone next to the mantel, a cracker barrel with a checkerboard in front of the fireplace, and a deer head and a rifle over the mantel. We just kind of follow that tradition, you know, the the deer head and the gun, that mantle, that fireplace is just a, a central focus when you come into the dining room. So, you know, it's it's kind of it's kind of from memory. It's kind of from you know our you know you we've seen fireplaces and and stores and cabins and houses, and that's you know a lot of times that's that's what they use. So we've just kind of followed that tradition. Larry, who has purchased more than 600,000 original artifacts over the years for Cracker Barrel, comes from a family of antique pickers. And in some ways, the warehouse that contains Cracker Barrel antiques also contains Larry's memories. I mean, a lot of it's, you know, the memory of my my family and uh, mom and dad. A lot of it is today, it's, it's about the memories of the guys that I... Uh, you know, have dealt with and bought from over the years. And there's been a lot of interested folks, <laughs> you know, so the, they're great memories, you know, they really are. Those guys is, you know, they were my teachers, just like my mom and dad. Nostalgia is a powerful driver, and for some it feels like an actual physical ache for the absence of the thing or person that was loved and lost suddenly resurrected in the memory like an apparition. Perhaps this is why, during the American Civil War, the song Home Sweet Home was banned from being played. The homesickness, the depression, and anxiety that resulted from the song's yearning sentiment was thought to stoke what was regarded as a disease of nostalgia. In fact, there were more than 5,200 cases recorded of nostalgia in the general surgeon's records, with 74 deaths attributed to nostalgia during the Civil War. Today, we better understand the bittersweet nature of nostalgia and the ways the bitter can be tamped down and the sweetness once again offered up, something explored in the AMC drama Mad Men. In this scene, Don Draper forwards through Kodak's new slide projector, the carousel, using photos of his own family from the last decade. In front of him, a simpler, happier-looking life flicks before his eyes. Teddy told me that in Greek, nostalgia literally means the pain from an old wound. It's a twinge in your heart, far more powerful than memory alone. This device isn't a spaceship, it's a time machine. It goes backwards and forwards. It takes us to a place where we ache to go again. It's not called the wheel. It's called the carousel. 
lets us travel the way a child travels. Around and around, and back home again. To a place where we know we are loved. When I started doing nostalgia research, I wasn't surprised that when people engage in nostalgia, it makes them happy. I mean, look at the marketplace for nostalgia, whether it's the rebooting movies, re-releasing music, fashion's coming back around. I mean, nostalgia is big business. Anyone in consumer psychology or in behavioral economics can tell you that. My name is Clay Rutledge. I am a social psychologist and professor of psychology at North Dakota State University. And I study, among other things, the psychology of nostalgia. I'm interested in the big questions. So what is it that gives us meaning in life? How do we cope with insecurities about things like death, loneliness, and those sorts of issues that are uniquely human concerns? So how does someone who studies nostalgia define it and what triggers it? Nostalgia defined is a sentimental or wistful longing for the past. Now, what that means for most people, based on our analyses of over you know, several thousand um, cases um, for sure, is nostalgia seems to be these special memories that we hold dear, that we cherish, and that we bring to mind when we want to revisit the, you know, some of the more important times in our life or the times that we think are really important to our, our sense of self and our sense of meaning in life. So there seems to be two general classes of nostalgia triggers. One is, I think, the most obvious, which is we could call like a sensory trigger, cues that serve as reminders of the past. So they might be familiar smells or sights uh, or things like music. You hear an old song from, you know, when you were a teenager and it, it, it brings to mind the memories associated with that. You smell your mom's, you know, grandmother's apple pie baking in the oven and it reminds you of when you had it when you were a kid. Seasonal changes can remind you, you know, the first snowfall can remind you of when you were a little kid and you used to go outside and build snowmen. Um, so there's those types of sensory triggers um, that are really just primes, of, you know, they're just they're just reminding you of the past. The second class of triggers has to do with feeling a psychological threat. These are things like loneliness, feeling meaningless, um, even boredom. And what nostalgia seems to do is that when people have these sorts of experiences that make them feel, feel vulnerable, um, or scared or uh, some sense of loss or meaninglessness, um, they bring to mind these nostalgic memories as a compensatory response or as a coping mechanism um, to reassure themselves, to right the ship, to feel like, you know, no, I, I'm fine. So loneliness is a good example because it's a very powerful trigger of nostalgia. When you feel lonely, um, it inspires you to remind yourself of times where you've had, you know, relationships with people and to remind you know, to remind yourself that there are people that care about you, that there are people that you know love you, that you have had experiences in your life of relationship success. And you can use those memories as a way to boost your confidence, your interpersonal confidence that, you know, this 
this might be a, a tough time, but you can get through it, and the future is the future of your social life um, could be bright again. This can be heady stuff, especially when just the right piece of music hits us. The way I think about it is we, we kind of have a soundtrack for our lives and for different times in our life. Music is very meaningful. I mean, it, 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 it's pervasive in all areas of culture, whether it's, you know, religious or secular culture, um, whether it's, you know, the, you know, nationalism, your national anthem or songs you hear at church or even just, you know, the music you like to listen to on your iPod. It does seem to be woven into the fabric of of culture and so it's not surprising that that goes hand in hand with when we access our memories of wanting you know wanting that soundtrack to go with them these snatches of nostalgia do something pretty magical mainly giving a person a sense of continuity as though there's a cohesive self among all the disparate thoughts and actions contained in one person Self-continuity is, is this sense of stability in the self that I'm the same person that I used to be, and even though my life, you know, goes through twists and turns, that you know, there's some core part of me or some sense of me that remains stable and the same. And this seems to be um, good for psychological well-being to feel like you have like a stable sense of self. Um, what now nostalgia can do, especially in times of upheaval, whether it be economic change or major life transitions like going off to college or starting a new job or retirement. And what nostalgia can do is sort of serve as a reminder, allow you to access these memories about who you are, who your close friends and your family are, as a way to um, regain some sense of stability. Yeah, I'm moving to a new place, I'm starting a new job, I'm going off to college, I'm getting ready to retire, um, but I'm still the same person I used to be. I still have the same... Um, you know, thoughts and feelings and interests. In Clay's research, he found that people who engage in nostalgic reflection get a motivational charge. We found that having people listen to nostalgic music, for instance, or having them write about a nostalgic memory again, um, increased their desire to meet new people, their willingness to, um, to work with strangers on a task, their confidence that they could solve problems they're having in their relationships and their desire to to make new friends and to try new things. So it doesn't just seem to make people feel me- meaningful, it doesn't just seem to like make them feel energetic. It seems to also m- mobilize people for pursuing new opportunities, which I thought was really cool because like I said, I mean, we think of nostalgia as oh, it's just you kind of avoiding the present and hiding in the past, but it really seems to be a catalyst for Um, future-oriented behavior. Again, this comes down to a kind of time travel, the ability to move between the past, present, and future and create sense from it, something that drove Clay to research nostalgia in the first place. When I was in graduate school working on my PhD, I was interested in the fact that human beings are the only species capable of a very sophisticated appreciation of time by being able to access memories and tell ourselves our, you know, fashion our own life narrative. Um, we are able to deal with some of the some of the consequences 
of this awareness of time. You know, we can think about the future and think about the fact that one day we're going to die, but at the same time we can say to ourselves, well, I'm going to do everything I can to live the best life I can, to make a meaningful contribution, to leave a, a, a legacy and to live on in the memories of others. And so that process um, of thinking about the future and what that might inspire, um, in my mind, got me thinking about the past, so how people can use the past, use their memories for the past as a way to cope with these existential anxieties. So that's how I first got into it, was just thinking about, well, if, the, if you're kind of afraid of the future, can you use the past as a way to cope with that fear? Um, and then it started going from there. Well, it looks like the past can do lots of stuff for us. In puzzling out the pieces of our lives and how they fit together, nostalgia can be incredibly useful. But there's also the temptation to use nostalgia like a movie set, rolling it in and out of our lives, mistaking the movie set as reality, and glossing over the details that are less charming or wonderful than we remembered. In her essay in the New York Review of Books, Zadie Smith, who is of Jamaican descent, writes of nostalgia, quote, In that period, I could not vote, marry my husband, have my children, work in the university I work in, or live in my neighborhood. Time travel is a discretionary art, a pleasure trip for some, and a horror story for others. The initial, like, uh, uh, mechanism of it in terms of survival is like, oh, it's a coping mechanism and you will be, you know, sort of soothed, presumably. But instead what's happening is uh, angry now used to be better. Real angry, it's not back then. Like, it, it's, there's some problem going on where it's not soothing at all anymore. It's just like the longing has superseded any sort of benefit the pleasant memory had. And now it's sort of like this weird anger maker for a lot of people. Podcast co-host Holly Fry and editor Christopher Hesiodis explore the problem of imagining a past that wasn't. If you look at Ed Grease when it was written in the 70s and the film that came out in the 80s, it's looking at the 50s in a very, very nostalgic, rosy view. Everything's great, everyone's dancing, and the dancing is great, but it completely ignores all the social upheaval around the corner. It ignores the poor living conditions for a significant amount of the population. And so... I wonder if we take this thing which on a personal, you know, individual animal basis is helpful and if it's applied culturally, it, it prevents us from, um, I don't know, looking accurately at our, at our own past. Well, first of all, let's get it straight. Like clearly Grease is a documentary and it's 100% <laughs> accurate. Now, I'm not like a big Grease person. I just, uh, I'm sure there are people that think that's exactly what the 50s was like. <laughs> I, I know I did. When my sister watched that movie every two days when she was a kid, and I thought, oh, that, well, that's what it was like a long time ago in the past, 20 years ago at the time. You were innocent in that you were ignorant of the things going on around you, so it feels like that time was wonderful and delightful and full of nothing but glitter and breakfast cereal, but in fact, really, you're just longing for the time when you didn't know better. 
The problem is that this kind of rhetoric, this a simpler time, becomes such an ingrained idea that it's taken as a universal truth. Which is what I think nostalgia does, at least when it's like this sort of super crowdsourced nostalgia. There was one truth. It was great. We had good times all the time. And it's like, no, it's there's so much more texture to any given moment in history than that. Just times before you were even born. You, know, you look back on these these things that must have been great back then, but you know, if if you gave me a time machine, I could take you somewhere and show you that it was much worse than you think it was. And when it comes to childhood nostalgia, the memories created in the nostalgia factories of the mind can be very different from other family members' experiences. I sort of experience that with my siblings sometimes and my friends. I don't know if it's just because I'm super cynical, but like, I mean, like any family, we had complicated stuff and it sometimes were great and sometimes weren't. But as we've aged and like my mom has passed and when my siblings talk about our growing up years and there's a big gap between them and me. So there's, there's a different childhood experience as part of it, but like, they'll just talk about like this magical, wonderful thing. And I'm like, did we grow up in the same house? Like, Sometimes it was cool, but I, you, do you remember the, okay, okay, hey, you're happy. I'm not going to mess that up. <laughs> and it, it is kind of an interesting, I mean, that's, it's like nostalgia has driven the bus at that point, And it's kind of like covering the puddles that were bad and just whitewashing the yucky bits and everything's good. It's all happy. Remember those amazing cakes that we got on our birthdays? Those were pretty great. Well, and maybe that's a, you know, again, that's a cultural survival mechanism. It keeps your family closer. If you actually had to talk about all the things that were complicated all the time with your family, families wouldn't stick together. The problem is when nostalgia is used as a manipulating force, fomenting hyper-nationalistic pride that would have wide swaths of the population cast aside in favor of an America that never really existed in the first place. Yeah, and I wonder how much of that is at play with... um a lot of what's going on around the world right now politically in terms of, I mean, so, so we're recording a couple days after the vote for the, the Brexit and the referendum on that. Uh, I, it seems like from a lot of the data that it was driven by the older electorate um, and a lot of people who express that they are really nostalgic, for lack of a better word, about the way things used to be before the EU, before, right. you know, there was... Uh, before borders were as open, before labor markets were as open. And I I think we see that a lot of that in the U.S. too, in certain political movements, Uh, people wanting things to be the way they were when when they were younger or when they understood things better, when there was more... Or the way they think they were. Exactly. To all Americans tonight, in all of our cities and in all of our towns, I make this promise. We will make America strong again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And we will make America great again. To be clear, nobody here is begrudging anyone of their nostalgia. Used in its best form, it can be something we return to again and again, propping us up when we need it. I um, bathe in it. Do you know what I mean? Like our entire house, my husband is the same, is filled with Star Wars toys. 
that we had when we were kids all the way up to new stuff. It's kind of like this this hallway that's always open to you to like kind of still remember and retain that childlike wonder at something. Holly's idea of nostalgia is beautiful, even helpful in thinking of the past as a touchstone to something elemental about our existence, something full of awe, a reminder that on this planet, in this galaxy, in this universe, we somehow get to exist. In the next episode, we look at what happens when fear takes hold and desperation takes over in the United States. We are a very suspicious nation. We'd like to thank Larry Singleton for sharing his work with us. And we'd like to thank Clay Rutledge for showing us the ways nostalgia can bolster us in our times of need. And thank you to Holly Fry of Stuff You Missed in History Class and editor Christopher Hesiotis for taking a seat at the table and discussing nostalgia. The Stuff of Life is written and executive produced by me, Julie Douglas, and co-produced by Noel Brown. Original music is by Noel Brown, and editorial oversight is provided by contributing producer Dylan Fagan and head of production Jerry Rowland. This episode also featured music by Tristan McNeil, Aaron Grubbs, and Dylan Fagan. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, you can call into our podcast line at one 844 H-S-W stuff that's S-T-U-F-F we'll be doing a wrap-up episode at the end of the season and we want to hear your voice in it so leave a message you can find The Stuff of Life on Facebook and Twitter and you can email us at thestuffoflife at howstuffworks.com If you're just looking at your own life and your own sphere of uh, existence to a lot of people that was the way life was and you know i think that's why it's a lot of times valuable to be able to look beyond yourself and connect with others oh boy are you talking about empathy i don't know yeah sorry that's another show you hippie (laughs) (laughs) hi this is kurt woodsmith You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
take good care, and we'll see you there. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. All right, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council.